It's a wonderful thing it, to be able to assemble and to gather in the way we are this evening. The tranquility and, yea, the desire of the heart that's brought each of us to this location at this time is truly a great thing for which we're certainly very thankful. And we always get excited about the opportunity to sing and to pray and to study a part of the Word of God and to offer all the aspects of Scripture worship. And we and I have done so many of those things already this evening. It is the case that we're going to speak about the dead know not anything for at least some amount of time during our study tonight. You may have noticed in the bulletin this morning, as well as, of course, on the wall to my left, we're going to use at least a portion of that Ecclesiastes 9 passage and think a little bit about the character of some of the features and questions that so often rest pretty powerfully upon our minds. In fact, to perhaps get immediately to the point... There are some questions or at least considerations that you may notice immediately at the top of this, this next slide. Although it may not be the most pleasant of subjects for the world in general, death is not something the Bible avoids at all. It is a subject that directly is brought before individuals. In fact, Paul seemingly didn't shy away from it in the least, did he? As he addressed letters to the Thessalonians, he addressed letters to the Philippians especially. He lifted high the character and banner of the hope a Christian is able to enjoy in relation to the subject of death. However, many questions readily come to the mind of, I suppose, nearly anybody. Well, what really is death? What is it that occurs at the moment of death? What about that which exists after it? The so-called afterlife, what is it that might be described relative to that? And we could, of course, ask a whole host of additional questions. Those who have passed on, what do they know? Are they aware of the events and activities taking place like the very worship service in which we're engaged tonight? If they do have some knowledge, how much? Does the Bible give us any answers on these things? If so, I trust we would be greatly interested in knowing what the Word of God does have to say about it. As always, the powerful refrain of Romans 4 verse 3 is that to which we must turn to begin. As Paul addressed the comments in the Roman letter, what saith the Scripture? Paul wasn't the slightest bit interested in asserting his hypothesis, his speculation, his opinion, or his purview on any one of these subjects. Although a brilliant man he was, he rested his conclusions upon a thus saith the Lord. Our desire is certainly to do exactly the same. As we come to the bottom of that slide then and make a transition to the next one, our thoughts and our ideas will then be in such a position to seek to develop some of these. We must certainly begin with death. I realize that it is a subject that it certainly touches us and our families. It touches us as certainly in light of precious individuals very near and dear to us. But one more time, aren't you thankful for the wisdom and the knowledge presented in the Bible? Because were it not for the Bible, we would have no idea about the ultimate nature of death and what it is that transpires after it. May I submit to you, there still to this day are entire volumes, tomes if you please, discussing the existential philosophies of death the characteristics of noted theologians and others throughout the ages. But quite frankly, none of us are the slightest bit interested in what their thoughts are if they're not grounded in the Bible. 
Because only God can tell us about death and what happens after it. Only God can reveal that. No wonder with that in place, we might well begin as follows in terms of a human being. Now we know here is one of the fantastic distinctions between life that's known as an animal and life, of course, that's human, such as you and me. We appreciate rather readily that Paul affirmed in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that a human being consists of these three rather ready appreciations. There's the body, there's the soul, and there's the spirit. And as Paul made quick passage in consideration of them, he highlighted then this multidimensional facet of a human being like you and me. As you and I develop that, you'll notice that the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder about the thoroughness and fullness of all of these. The body, for example. You and I, as we look upon this physical body that, of course, is so readily seen, and this body that we take such great pains to care for, and there's nothing inappropriate about that. But as you look with care at this body, we're told something monumental in Genesis 3.19. On the very occasion of that sin that Adam and Eve committed, God addressing each one of them finally came to Adam and said, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread until thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return." And we learned something that I suppose that chemists didn't learn for millennia later. The human body consists of the same chemical elements that dirt's made of. The same chemical elements consisting in that which is the soil upon which you and I walk. It's the same elements that comprise this human body. Things like oxygen and silicon, things like carbon and matters like that. We understand they're just well-known chemical elements and so in terms of fancifulness or great extravagance with respect to the body, it wasn't made that way. You might also appreciate rather readily then that there's the soul. Inasmuch as it's described in the Bible, on occasions we do find spirit and soul sometimes not listed separately, but rather only one of them is chosen to describe a particular feature or consideration. But when they're listed, when they're listed together it's clear that they are not exactly the same thing. Wasn't it true in Hebrews 4 verse 12? The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Clearly there's some distinction because they are able to be discerned or distinguished based on the text like that one. In those cases when they're to be distinguished, soul seemingly has, as it's used in the Bible, a careful and powerful reference to the animation that comes by virtue of what's manifested in breathing. I've tried to identify it like that. For in Genesis 2 verse 7, how was it there that God stated it? And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It appears then on those occasions when it's distinguished, it has a powerful real reflection upon that which is manifested in the activity of breathing. Respiration, if you please. But you'll notice perhaps the one that captures our attention most readily is the Spirit. Now keep in mind, when we talk about the eternal character of the human being, it is the Spirit that we have in mind. Now again, there are verses where the word soul is used to describe that. In any of those cases, 
Where does that spirit come from? It comes from God. In Zechariah 12, verse number 1, it's the God of heaven that formeth the spirit of man within him. And in Hebrews 12, verse number 9, that famous question in which there it's asked about the nature of, is not God the one that formeth the spirit of man within him? The spirit then is the final ultimate character that is the eternal nature of you and me. Remember, God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And so to say that you and I are a spirit puts us on a plateau, not at all unlike the characteristic of the great nature of God Himself. Now please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we are equal to God. I'm not saying we have the power, knowledge, or wisdom of God. But we fundamentally are a spirit being just like He is. God is a spirit, and you and I are immortal spirits. As you give thought to those things, it is that spirit that animates this body. Job 27.3 informs us of that. Job said, as long as the Spirit of God is within me, I have life. That will be a, somewhat of a prelude to a famous passage in James 2 in just a moment. Isn't it fascinating to think of this intricacy of life? At the time that a man and woman come together in that act of conception, God puts a spirit within that being at that moment. It's not just a matter of tissue. It's not just a matter of if you please something separate and apart from the character of life. A life is now in place. And it's an immortal life, an immortal spirit that animates that little body and that will do so until the time that spirit departs that body. For after all, that's what death is by definition. As I noted earlier, so many questions and so many philosophical presentations in an attempt to understand death, and they all fall far short if they are separate and apart from the Bible. It's only God that can reveal to us that which truly is the matter of death. James 2.26 says it like this, In that famous presentation, having relationship to the nature of faith and the intricacy of works along with it, he said in the 26th verse of James chapter 2, that the body without the spirit is dead. To put all those ideas together, we then appreciate that that spirit that God places within that little body this body is just a tent. It's a tabernacle, if you please, in which that spirit dwells for a little while. And when the time comes that that spirit departs the body, that which remains, namely the body, is now said to be dead. It's no longer respiring. It no longer gives the element of, of being alive, that element of breathing. The body is said to be dead. You'll notice in light of that, the body begins to decompose. That again is something the Bible informs us. What was it again that God said to Adam? Till you return to the dust? Because out of it were you made? You and I realize that if the Lord delays His coming and we pass from this life in the avenue of death, this body is going to turn back into those fundamental elements of which the dirt again is made. That's what happens in that consideration of decomposition. You may notice somewhat quickly in Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 7, we're told on the third occasion there that the body returns to the dust out of which it was made. 
Now, you and I shouldn't then look upon that as a troubling thing. That is a natural presentation from what the God of heaven put in place. But keep in mind, to say then that that body is dead, remember, the person is not. Remember, the Spirit is the one that is that individual. The Spirit's the one that animated the body, and the Spirit is as alive as it ever was. It's just not housed in the body anymore. For you'll notice at the bottom, the Spirit returns to God that gave it. Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 7. So far, these thoughts that have reminded us about what occurs and what takes place in this avenue or matter of death only makes us wonder what else might we conclude? What other things might be before us in terms of discussion? As you come to this next slide, let us think for at least a moment of a few additional matters touching this subject of death. First of all, I realize too that there are many particular thoughts and maybe you've heard stories or maybe even read stories in newspapers about a certain person died went to the other side and came back. I have to admit, and I think the Bible will support it, that I don't believe we can have any confidence in any such claim. Because in Hebrews 9 verse 27 it says this, As it is appointed unto men once to die. He said once. That word is in Greek. He didn't say two, three, or more. And if a person goes to the other side and truly dies and comes back, that would be two deaths at least. The Bible says one. It would appear to me then one immediately has to call into question any such claim along that line. In addition to that, though, might we notice some additional thoughts we can now continue to say about the departure of that spirit. We've stated so far that, again, God Himself is a spirit and God will never, ever die. Death is not something of which He is capable and it will never touch Him in any way. You and I are spirits, remember? We have taught to us in the Bible the fact then that although we, our spirit may depart that physical body and leave that body then as something described as dead, the spirit does not die. The Spirit will live on. The Spirit is eternal. That Spirit will proceed to exist indefinitely. There will never come a time when it will be annihilated. There will never come a time it will fall out of existence. There will never come a time when it will cease to be. You and I are eternal. That alone casts a remarkably long shadow upon the significance of what the Bible has to say. When we give an answer to the God of heaven at judgment... It has ramifications and consequences that will last indefinitely from their own. And the sentence rendered at judgment will never be, never be altered, never be rescinded, never be changed. No wonder then some of these thoughts, where do those spirits go when they die? We've learned the body, of course, begins to decompose, but what about the spirit that previously had animated it? Where does that body go or where does that spirit go? Again, the Bible is not silent, but rather gives us a great deal of information. The term that Jesus and others used was the word Hades, H-A-D-E-S. And there are some thoughts you may notice there at the top of that slide. By definition, that word Hades simply means the realm of departed spirits. And therefore, by definition, that is the place to which those spirits go, the realm of departed spirits. 
I think it's rather interesting as I tried to make some preparation for this. You and I know here in America, and yea, I suppose since the, the time of Christ living here and onward, we've had a keen understanding about the existence of a place like this. But remember, there were people that lived long before Jesus ever came to earth. What about those Old Testament worthies like Noah and Moses and David and others? Well, they died. Where did their spirits go? Same place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Sheol. It has the same meaning as the New Testament word Hades. Their spirits also went to the realm of departed spirits known as Hades. In fact, you might notice some of these brief comments. When our Savior died on the cross, you may remember that He too had taken on Himself the form of flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14, and yet they killed Him on the cross. Where did His Spirit go? Thankfully, Peter tells us. In Acts 2, verse number 31, as he gave that powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, he exactly said that when Jesus died, his spirit went to Hades. The Son of God, thus, for a period of about three days, his spirit, too, was in Hades, dwelling there in that location, in that place. You and I, of course, can readily then appreciate this. Admittedly, there is an unfortunate rendering as it relates to the King James translation, we've often noted it in our Bible classes and even in some sermons as well. As you read through the New Testament in the King James translation, the word Hades doesn't appear anywhere. All of those places where that word and, and two others appear, they're all translated by the same English word, hell. So when you, in the original Greek, when it said Hades, they put the word hell in place. When they encountered the word Tartarus, they put hell in place. When they encountered the word Gehenna, they put hell in place. All three, they chose to use the same word, and that was a very unfortunate thing because all three are not the same. We're about to cast the spotlight on some of them for the remainder of the lesson this evening. But you may notice, why don't we start like this? In Luke chapter 23... Not only do we have a record of Jesus' death, but there were two others that were also crucified that day with him. What about one of those thieves? We may remember that one of those thieves, of course, railed upon Jesus and was in fact a little bit rebuking of him. However, there was another thief there who said, We are getting what is our just and rightful thing, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was talking about Jesus. And in verse number 43 of Luke 23, Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus, in referring that to that gentleman who was in a great deal of pain, was in a great deal of difficult circumstances, he said, Today. Notice the word today is an adverb indicative of a place and time. This very day, if you and I might then put together that which we've noted earlier, your spirit's going to leave your body and you're going to be with me in paradise. So where did Jesus go? We've already learned he went to Hades. But now the Lord's own words in indicate he was going to paradise. And that thief, or should I say, perhaps that repentant thief was going to be there with him. Paradise. Apparently the very usage of that word here is indicative then of a region, a realm if you please, in that Hadean realm a place that you and I perhaps should note like this. 
In Luke chapter 16, we have the Lord's own words describing another feature of this particular matter. You remember there was a description of the rich man and Lazarus. Both of them died. Lazarus opened his eyes or found himself in a place called Abraham's bosom. It would appear then that you and I can make a correspondence. Abraham's bosom is paradise, apparently. And this is a location that is described as a place of comfort, a place of bliss. Remember that we find on that occasion that this man Lazarus found himself in a place that he was not tormented. He was not in a place of discomfort. In fact, as the rich man from a distance saw him, he desired so much to enjoy some of the peacefulness that Lazarus enjoyed. It would appear then that Abraham's bosom is another descriptive of a place known as paradise, a place in Hades where the spirits of the departed righteous are able to enjoy a time of comfort, a period of solace, a period certainly that is so highly described in the Bible. You'll notice furthermore that this place now stands very much opposed to some other things because remember the rich man also died, but he seemingly was in a very different place. Now notice in the fact that he died, his spirit still went to Hades. There's only one place the Bible ever describes for the realm of departed spirits we can apparently conclude his spirit too went to Hades, but apparently it was not in paradise. It was not in Abraham's bosom. We do have a reference in 2 Peter 2.4 to apparently where spirits like that one were. You may notice carefully as Peter makes a remarkable presentation, he refers to some angels that sinned. And you and I know the devil was among that number, but of course, we realize that there were also not just the devil, but there were some angels that chose to join themselves or align themselves with him. What did Peter say about them? It says, They are bound in everlasting chains in Tartarus. Now, again, the King James Version is hell. That's the word it's used. But remember, three different words were all translated with the same, and that was a terrible choice, it seems to me. But the Greek word there is Tartarus. And I've tried to write that on the slide for us. Here we learn that these evil angels are waiting in that place. It would appear that it's a place of punishment, a place of evil agony, and a place of great difficulty. And that seems to be described, descriptive of the same place the rich man was. Seems as though we can conclude there are then two receptacles or two compartments in Hades. One known as paradise or Abraham's bosom. The other known as Tartarus. As you and I give thought briefly to Tartarus, again, you'll notice this place where those departed spirits of the unrighteous go, the unfaithful. Perhaps it's time to notice. Although the rich man so much wanted to enjoy some of the benefits and blessings, in fact, he even wanted his tongue to be made cooler by virtue of Lazarus coming. However, he was directly told there is a great gulf fixed. There is no passage in either direction. 
it would seem then in our conception of this place known as Hades, there is an impassable wall, a gulf if you please, and there is no passing it in either direction. The spirits that are in the paradise part, they will be able to remain there until the second coming of the Master. And those who are in the Tartarus side, they too are there until the second coming of the Master. This great gulf perhaps leads us to notice this. As we think about the continuance of that region and that realm, may you and I notice immediately that place is real. It's not a figment of anybody's imagination. Those spirits, again, that depart the bodies of these here on earth, that's where they go. These New Testament writers that refer to that place, remember they had the knowledge of inspiration and they could speak with authority about this. The very last point on that slide, may we pause to comment, Hades is not permanent. It's not as if those spirits that have entered into that place will be there for all eternity. For the Bible quickly informs us of something relatively near the end of it. In Revelation chapter 20, you remember the scene that unfolds. The devil has already been cast away into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. And you notice then the finality of this place called Gehenna. That is eternal hell. Notice something though. We're told in verses 13 and 14 of that chapter that Hades will be emptied. And you and I knew that it would because that's what the resurrection is all about, isn't it? The Bible is so quick to remind us there is coming a time of resurrection when those spirits that are now in the Hadean realm will flood out of that place and then re-inhabit bodies that have been prepared for them. Once Hades is emptied, the writer in Revelation tells us it will be cast into the lake of fire. So you'll notice that again tells us Hades is real. And it literally will be cast into this place known as Gehenna. There will be no longer any use for Hades then. As we come to the bottom of that slide, you'll notice rather interestingly that all of these features lead us to perhaps note the following. What more can we say about these spirits that inhabit Hades. You and I can again think the current world's population is well over 7 billion. And ever since the dawn of time, think how many human beings have lived on this earth. And yet, upon their death, we appreciate those spirits that have departed, they went to a region, a realm known as Hades. What more can we conclude? Well, the first thing that's fair to say is with both Old and New Testament as our guide, Hades is a region in which those spirits that are there are conscious. They are very aware of where they are. The rich man knew very well he was in torment. Nobody had to tell him. Lazarus knew very well he was in a place of comfort, again, known as Abraham's bosom. It would appear nobody had to tell him. We're taught in the Scriptures then that upon the time of death, the angels assist in carrying those spirits away and they take them to these realms, these regions known as Hades. Not only that, you may remember a powerful statement and even a question asked in Revelation 6. There, as the particular seals were being loosed and opened, we arrive at the fifth seal. 
we all remember the impressiveness of it. When Jesus opened that seal, the souls of some who had died in faith, they asked, how long shall it be before our blood shall be vindicated? Notice, they were still aware of the fact the final judgment had happened. They were still aware of the fact in consciousness and in awareness that yet the ending point had not arrived. What else might we say? We might also note this. And this is one of the strongest considerations, it seems to me, about the matter of Hades. In Hades, there appears to be memory. There appears to be very much a characteristic of recognition. By the way, won't that mean that those on the Tartarus part, that'll surely be one of the most damning things imaginable. To think that here I am in torment and here I am in this place with flame and difficulty and I had opportunity in life to obey the gospel, to accept the blood of Christ, to be drawn near to the Master and to understand that there is a place of comfort and I didn't have to be here. That surely will be one of the most difficult parts of being cast into this place, this place called uh, Tartarus. You'll notice furthermore... It appears that one can appreciate an existence of recognition in this place. In other words, these spirits that have gone on, if someone died in faith and you and I die later, apparently we shall be able to recognize them and we'll know them. Won't that be a great reunion, by the way? Even before the final day of judgment. In fact, in Luke 16, 25, you remember there, again, borrowing from that same presentation of the rich man and Lazarus, you may remember easily that some of the statements that were made on that occasion lead us to consider that. But maybe these additional examples in 1 Samuel 28, when the witch of Endor, on, on that occasion the God of heaven brought Samuel back, isn't it amazing they recognized each other? Saul recognized him. Doesn't that indicate that although Samuel had been dead for some number of times, still the fact was he was recognizable. Maybe another example. In 2 Samuel 12, 23, what was it David exclaimed? On that occasion when his baby boy died, he said, I shall go to him. Isn't that beautiful? He used a First-person pronoun, I'll go to Him. I won't go to some nebulous existence in the life after this one. I'm going to see Him. And you and I can have the fullest of assurance of that. Not only that, in Matthew 17, 1, on that Mount of Transfiguration, remember, I've always thought it remarkable. Together there with Jesus appeared both Moses and Elijah, two individuals that had been dead for centuries and Peter knew exactly who they were. Peter recognized them. The others that were with him apparently did as well. It seems to me all of that highlights that you and I can appreciate rather remarkably that there is awareness in Hades. When we depart this life, we're not going to a place where we're just going to be asleep all the time. Awareness, consciousness, not only that, Perhaps it's time to ask, what about the degree of their knowledge? We might even be very direct. Do they know what's going on on earth here now? Are they aware of this? If so, to what extent is that knowledge? 
Well, you might notice in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 4 to 6, the very passage read earlier, there's a statement about the dead know not anything. Now, it is true that we've just learned one can't claim they literally know nothing. They know whether they're in Tartarus or whether they're in, or whether they're in Abraham's bosom. They know whether they're in torment or, or in a place of comfort. They do know that. Our question's a little different. Are they aware of world affairs? And do they know the intricacies and features of the lives of their loved ones they've left behind? It seems to me the Bible's rather clear on this. The answer's no. They do not know those things. Look at a passage, for instance, in 2 Chronicles 34, 28. On that occasion, we read something rather interesting. It goes like this. Josiah was, of course, a very good king in ancient Judah. However, you may remember that many of those that were certainly living at the time, they had forgotten the law of God. They were not obedient to it. The time came, they found a book of the law as they were renovating the temple. And you may remember that Josiah wanted to know what that book contained, and he wanted to know what it was that God would have the people do. Due to the tenderness and the earnestness of his heart, God said to Josiah, you're going to die, but you're not going to see what's going to happen to this people. Now it seems to me like if he truly had full knowledge of everything taking place on earth, then how would he not see it? If, the, if they are able to see all these things. But God expressly told Josiah, you will not see it. Now maybe in light of that, you and I can look at some additional passages that help us appreciate that although they know many things, they don't know the specific and particular details of what's going on here. They are in essence waiting for those on this life to come and relate any information to them but more than anything, they're waiting, of course, for that day of judgment. What's more, you'll notice they also know that judgment has not taken place yet. That, too, is a very great statement. Some might be quick to say, well, if it's true that we depart this life and we're either, either in this place of torment or this place of, of, of comfort, haven't we been judged already at the time of our death? And admittedly, there's a sense in which by our actions and our obedience or lack thereof, we have determined our location or our place in, 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 in that realm of Hades. But may we never, ever forget that there still is the finality of the judgment, and it is a vital matter, so vital that it probably would take us, in fact, through an entirely separate sermon than this one. But maybe I would ask you to notice Something incredibly vital is this. What kind of body is to be understood relative to those in Hades? Now, the more I studied this, it seems to me that's a vital question. You and I here have a physical body. And at the time our spirit departs the body, this physical body is left behind. There seemingly is no reference anywhere in the Bible to a body in Hades. In other words, there are spirits there, but there are no bodies. Now that too is a very interesting thing. Because isn't it true that that's the thrust of the great resurrection morning? Jesus is coming back and we will all be given bodies fit for eternity. 
But notice, apparently we don't have one prior to then. Paul spoke about that body, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians 15. He spoke about the celestialness of it, the greatness of it. Perhaps to summarize much of that, you and I are going to be fit with an incorruptible body. And that'll happen when Jesus returns, apparently not before. That, of course, begs a lot of additional questions. Because after all, all of the sensations that you and I are accustomed to hinge upon having a body. The passage of time rests upon having a body. The understanding of things in time and space require a body. It would seem to me at the very least that indicates that what you and I would call the passage of time must be very different in Hades. Without a body to experience it, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot more about it. How do they sense the passage of time? The Bible doesn't say. We do know this. Both the rich man and Lazarus were keenly aware of it, although it may have passed at a very different rate than what would be perceived on earth. Maybe in light of all of that, it's certainly fair to comment about this. These studies that we have made to this point, what about some more thoughts in Hades? I just now commented a little bit about this passage of time, but I wanted you to look at a few verses that seemingly provide a little information about it. First of all, in Hebrews 9.27, As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. After this, after death, now on earth there may be thousands of years or more between the time of death and the time of, that one would recognize as the judgment. But yet the Hebrew writer described it as if at least the perception of time might be well different. Now surely one must conclude, again, that being in Tartarus, no matter how little time, that's not a good place to be. Because again, the rich man was in torment, and none of us surely want to go there for any amount of time, no matter how little or great it might be. But that passage of time might lead us to notice how Paul described that body that we're going to be given. In 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse number 1, this tabernacle or this tent that we will have long since put off, he commented about the gloriousness of that body with which we would be equipped that body that would be fit for eternity, that body that would know no corruption, that body that will never, never cease to be. You and I know now that these bodies deteriorate. We live here on earth long enough and things just don't work the way that they once did. But these bodies that we're fit with for eternity, well, they will never wear out. They will never succumb to the fancying passage of time because after all, the passage of time when we arrive at heaven, will not be a consideration. I know sometimes we sing in that song, Amazing Grace, the last verse mentions, though we've been there 10,000 years, but there is no time in heaven. After that time of judgment, we arrive at that glorious moment. We enter into those grand places. The Bible makes no reference to what you and I would call time. It's an endless, endless place. Surely in light of that, perhaps there are some examples in the Bible. These, we don't want to overlook them. 
but let's be very fair about it. There was a scene in Luke chapter 7 when you may remember Jesus raised from the dead, the son of the widow of Nain. And we remember Jesus raised back to life, the daughter of Jairus. And Jesus raised back to life, Lazarus, in John chapter 11. We even remember some scenes, of course, in Matthew 27, when on the time of the Lord's crucifixion, remember, the graves were opened. But as you think about all those things, remember, Jesus by miracle made those things happen. The widow of Nain's son, the characteristic of Lazarus, the circumstance surrounding Jairus' daughter. As those powers were manifested then, we shouldn't have any hope or claim that anything like that can happen today. Maybe also beyond that, you might note that last thought. May I submit, if those things could happen, how does that help us understand 2 Corinthians 12? The scene there is a very telling one. You remember that Paul, in his defense of his own apostleship, he said, I once knew a man who went to the third heaven. But you'll notice what he quickly said. He heard things, but it quickly was reminded to him he was not permitted to tell it. Don't you want to know what Paul saw? Don't you want to know what he heard? Fact is, I'd like to know. I'm sure we all would. But he says, I was told it's not lawful for you to speak it. That leads me to believe that though any who could pass beyond the veil of death, even if they could do it, they wouldn't be allowed to come back and tell us anything. And the Bible seems to openly set before us the fact that even on that occasion, it wasn't lawful. Surely in light of all those things, as we contemplate this description of Hades, we are left with maybe one final thought, and we'll expand on it somewhat thoroughly. Those spirits that are now in Hades, remember, they're awaiting that resurrection. The time when those spirits will re-inhabit a body that's been prepared for them. The thoughts in the Bible tell us this. Jesus rather profoundly asserted in John 5, 28 and 9. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Everybody that's ever died is going to come forth at that same moment. Now some to the resurrection of life, others to the resurrection of condemnation or damnation. Surely we want to live in such a way that upon our death we can enjoy the resurrection of life. But not only that, the implication in Matthew 25 is that the judgment will then happen immediately, instantly. Jesus said all nations will be gathered before Him. Not a single soul, not a single spirit will be exempt. Everybody will be there. They will be divided, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. And there will be this incredible pronouncement. Can you imagine the happiness and the joy characteristic of those on the right? Remember, they have consciousness. They know where they are and what's going on. Can you imagine the excitement of being put on the right hand of the Lord? Truly, that would, must be unfathomable happiness by its very definition. But by the same token, can you imagine the horror of noticing you being placed on the left? To know that the sentence is now final and never ever can it be changed. 
and not a single moment. And I suspect Gehenna will be seen in the distance. The fires of hell will burn and rage. Maybe the heat will be felt. At some point, though, you'll be in such a position to hear that sentence from the Master. I shed my blood for you, and you chose to deny it, to disobey it. Because of the greatness of that offer, you now hear the greatness of this sentence. Look furthermore. The standard utilized to dictate that sentence will be the very Word of God. John 12, 48 still says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In addition to that, you'll notice then that spirit to which we referred earlier. Upon their resurrection, those spirits will now be given a body. We're told it'll be a body for the faithful like the very resurrected body of Christ. 1 John 3 verses 1 to 3. That kind of body leads us to notice that then for these there will be no sorrow, no pain, no sadness of any kind. Now you and I can appreciate perhaps the greatness of God will bring that about. We again notice that we've already appreciated there will be the opportunity and capability of resurrection, but it would seem that God will take care of everything in terms of any sadnesses, any problems or difficulties. Not only that, you'll notice that this place called heaven, which is now that final place of abode, and just as we noted earlier, paradise, this place in Hades is not the same as heaven. Although paradise might be a place of bliss and comfort, how much grander must heaven be? Because after all, the throne of God is there. Jesus is there, the Holy Spirit's there, God the Father is there, and there are also those angels described in Revelation 7. You perhaps will also notice, so far we have attempted to think about what occurs at death. That place called Gehenna, to which I've referred a couple of times in the lesson, that place of fire and brimstone, a place of agonizing and excruciating difficulty and pain. Jesus very clearly said this in Matthew 25, verse 41. Hell, this Gehenna, is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never the plan of God that any human being ever be sent to hell. But the fact is, because humans disobey and humans have made that very tragic choice, many will end up there. That's the way the Revelation closes. Remember, not only the devil, but all those that followed him will be cast into that place. The tragedy of that moment, truly a grand thing. As for right now, you and I might ask, I find it interesting that Jesus spoke about the fact he's going to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. That famous text in John 14, 1 to 3 we learned then that some aspect of heaven is currently in preparation. In other words, the Lord is getting it ready for those that are His faithful children, and it will be ready when He comes back. It would seem, in light of 2 Peter 2 verse 4, that hell too is a place under preparation, a place in which the powers in that region are getting it ready as the eternal abode 
of all the disobedient. So at this point we can say, as far as the Bible reveals, there is not any spirits at all in any element in hell, Gehenna, even if any part of it does exist. For that's what that day of judgment's for. That final pronouncement, that final proclamation. Are you as chilled as I have been in trying to make preparation for the seriousness of this life and the urgency of it? To make sure above all things else that you die in the Lord. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. What a blessing it is to die in Christ. But just as great a blessing as that is, think how awful it must be to die out of Christ. For the moment you die, the moment you die, you know exactly where your spirit is. And you know exactly the mistakes that happen and you know there's nothing that you can do about it. May we all live wisely. May we live urgently. Redeeming the time, borrowing the words of Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Because the days are evil. As we've studied this lesson tonight, trying to appreciate what the dead know and what they don't know, we have found many things that they do know, but a whole lot of things here on earth, of course, they don't. The conclusion of the lesson is this. We now know clearly from the Bible's description what death is. We know exactly this Hadean realm and how the Bible portrays it. We understand it's not permanent, but it will give way to eternity in heaven or hell. Gehenna or the beautiful throne room of God, Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4. Maybe the final thing then will be, are you ready for judgment? It could happen tonight, you know. It might happen tomorrow. Again, we're accustomed to the passage of time on this earth. But you and I know very well that the things beyond this region, the things of that spirit realm beyond, we must always be aware of them. Careful to make sure we've prepared this in such a way we can leave this life in peace, leave it in preparation, leave it ready to meet the Master in judgment. Tonight, if all things aren't well with your soul... This is a convenient time and a time of extension of the invitation. Jesus died that you and I might be saved, Acts 4 verse 12. His blood purchased the church, Acts 20, 28. And it is that church that is the dwelling place of the saved, Ephesians 5, 23. Are you a faithful then member of that body? If you're not, you cannot die and go to paradise. At least if you've reached the age of accountability. May we ask again, if there's one in the audience that's never rendered obedience to the gospel, why not tonight? If you have done that, but you've strayed from faithfulness, and you know you cannot die in the Lord, if that were to happen tonight, make things right. Jesus has extended the invitation. The decision's now yours. Make the step to come down this aisle tonight, if that's what you need to do, and let us pray for you. We'd be honored to do that. A hymn of encouragement has been selected, and if we could be of assistance to you, don't delay, but why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?